Hello and welcome to the Flame podcast, where we explore future libraries, archives and museums in excavation. I'm Laura Wilson, CLEAR Postdoctoral Fellow at Fisk University, Nashville, Tennessee. In this podcast series, we analyse the interviews we conducted with those who work in the cultural heritage world of museums, libraries, galleries and archives, as well as scholars who are also a part of that world. Joining me today for this episode is a voice that's new to Flame, Justin Shell. Thanks, Laura. I'm Justin Shell, a former CLEAR postdoctoral fellow and currently the Director of Scholarly Technology and Creative Spaces at the University of Michigan Library. Excited to be here. Wonderful. And in addition to this new voice, I'll note a stylistic difference in this episode. In our previous four episodes, we analyzed two different interviews. In the upcoming episodes, however, we're going to try something different focusing on single interviews. We'll still be highlighting prominent topics about BIPOC representation in academia, BIPOC representation in archives, museum, gallery and library spaces, and we'll continue to look into the issue of sparse representation and misrepresentation. We'll continue to talk about examples of representation and collaboration with Indigenous nations, which is in fact the subject of today's episode. In this episode, we'll focus on archaeological collaboration with indigenous tribes and what that looks like from the perspective of one particular archaeologist, Professor Stephen Silliman, and his work with the Eastern Pequod Nation. Silliman is Professor of Anthropology at UMass Boston. His interests include theories of identity, labor, material culture, and post-colonial collaborative indigenous archaeology, and the impact of post-Columbian colonialism on indigenous nations. He works regularly with the Eastern Pequot Tribal Nation, in North Stonington, Connecticut, on issues relating to historic preservation and archaeological research. He's published many articles and books, including one entitled Engaging Archaeology, 25 Case Studies in Research Practice. In 2019, he co-authored an article with members of the Eastern Pequot Nation entitled Authoring and Authority in Eastern Pequot Community Heritage and Archaeology. The collaborations between Professor Silliman and the Eastern Pequot Nation offer an example of collaborative scholarly work that centers an indigenous community at its core. Flame co-host AJ Turnator conducted the interview with Professor Silliman, and you might hear her voice pop in occasionally. So in every interview we conduct for this podcast, we ask our participants to choose three words or phrases that best describe the work that they do. This question often takes interviewees a while to mull over, and is sometimes expressed through multiple clips. But Professor Stephen Silliman's answers were straightforward, so we wanted to give them to you directly from him. Uh, I'd have to say those would be community, collaboration, and then as a longer phrase, indigenous archaeology and heritage. All three phrases are important, and we'll touch upon them throughout the interview. Silliman began working with the Eastern Pequot Nation to essentially understand and preserve their heritage. The Pequots are an indigenous people currently in the state of Connecticut, where they live alongside Mohicans, the Scaticook, Narragansett, and other neighboring nations. The Pequot War and the Mystic Massacre of 1637 at Mystic, Connecticut, resulted from rising tensions about the fur trade and governance disputes between the English colonists and local tribes. The Pequot War of 1637 was a turning point in the nation's history. The division between the Eastern and Western Pequots dates back to that important war when hundreds of Pequot children, elders, and adults were killed. About a year or so after the war, the Eastern Pequot started to live on the reservation where they still are today. This reservation is one of the earliest tribal reservations in the country, and has been continuously occupied by the Eastern Pequot tribe. 
You will hear Stephen refer to the reservation period. That's when the Pequot tribe was divided and the eastern Pequots moved to a reservation in North Stonington and separated from their Mashantucket brethren to the west. The eastern Pequot, I should add, are a state-recognized tribe. They started petitioning for federal recognition in the late 1970s. After about 30 years of struggle, their petition was first approved and then denied in 2005. Professor Silliman's relationship with the tribe dates back to the early 2000s and is connected to the tribe's federal recognition process, which you'll hear reference throughout the interview. The Eastern Pequot's application was accepted by the Department of the Interior in 2002, but it was challenged and eventually denied in 2005. By contrast, the Western Pequot have been a federally registered tribe since 1983. So the Eastern Pequot received their reservation in 1683, and the Mashantucket, or the Western Pequot, received theirs in 1666. These are a few decades of regrouping and outgrowth out of the Pequot War from 1636-37. And the Treaty of Hartford in 1638 attempted to, in an archival legal sense, um, erase the Pequot, because when the after the close of the Pequot War, the Pequot who survived were either sold into slavery in the Caribbean, they were executed, or they were put under the sort of um, overseership, or um, I don't know quite what to word that, but some were put under the Mohegan and some under the Narragansett who were neighboring um, communities who had allied with the English um, before realizing quite what the English were up to. And then, of course, as these colonial things go, the Mohegan and the Narragansett would then face their own problems with uh, colonial presence. But that's how, so the Eastern and the Western Pequot were all just the Pequot uh, prior to the Pequot War. And they were a large indigenous nation that uh, wielded quite a bit of power in Southern New England with um, trade and diplomatic relationships, but with the sort of onslaught of uh, epidemic diseases and the English deciding they wanted more expansion, they wanted their perception of heathen, devil-oriented indigenous people, they wanted to sort of move them out of the way to get land, to spread Christianity, those kinds of politics and issues were in play. So that's what results in the creation of the Western and the Eastern um, Pequot. But if you back up before that, they're all Pequot and the indigenous presence on the New England landscape is, you know, at least 10,000 years or more as you kind of get back into um, glaciers sitting on top of some of these areas before that time. So these are long-term indigenous histories. 10,000 years of history. That's a truly epic temporal scale. In a way then, Stephen prepared the evidence for the tribe so that their existence on their own ancestral lands could be proved scientifically to the federal authorities. Of course though, there's a big difference between the coastal lands that the tribe originally occupied versus the reservation land that they were forced onto following the Pequod War of 1637. Stephen says that the Eastern Pequod were interested in all of that history. In the next clip, Stephen refers to points, and for our listeners, those would be sharp stone tools like arrowheads. What we've tried to do is sort of capture the reservation period, but at the same time, the Eastern Pequod are very interested in what is the ancestral landscape? What can we find archaeologically? 
And so, you know, in our investigations, we're sometimes finding uh, points that would have been on spears or darts that go back anywhere from two to 8,000 years. So that's been um, really exciting for the Eastern Pequot to see things made by their ancestors that are sort of grounding the indigenous presence on that landscape, but then looking at what happens in the reservation period when, and this is important too, so that's a, it's a very rocky sort of upland area that they were given as a reservation um, when they used to have access to fertile soils along rivers where they were growing corn, where they used to have access to coastal resources. Uh, their negotiations to get land were fruitful in the sense that they were able to secure reservation land, but it wasn't ideal land. So this land, they, their ancestors had used for thousands of years for hunting and gathering different sorts of resources at different times of year. But it's clear that the upland rocky spot where the reservation is now was not a place where they had a large village or they had multiple homes. At least we've not seen those archeologically. We sort of see the archeological evidence of people using it, but sort of coming through it and tying it into bigger landscapes where suddenly on that rocky piece of land is basically colonists were saying, you get like 200 and something acres, good luck growing crops on that, good luck getting to the coast, good luck finding animals to hunt because we're living all around you, and good luck whenever we tear down your fences and let our livestock trample your gardens as part of further attempts at you know, erasure and um, destruction of that. And these are the sorts of things that they were battling as they were persisting as a community. So that kind of sets that bigger framework and why they're really interested in both pre-reservation things and reservation things, because it's part of that long picture of uh, Pequot history in uh, Connecticut. This highlights the very painful effects of colonization all the way to the present. AJ asked Stephen about how he built a relationship with the Eastern Pequot Nation over the course of the last two decades, about the articles he co-authored with tribal members, and the field school that is still going strong. Yeah, this project with the Eastern Pequot Tribal Nation, it's been a collaborative one between the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the Eastern Pequot community. Uh, this, began, uh, this began in 2003 uh, at their invitation. They were on the cusp of receiving federal acknowledgement and they wanted to do an archeological project or wanted to consider one that helped them with cultural and historical preservation as an initiative they wanted to emphasize going forward with this expected federal recognition. Now, uh, the bigger problem with all of that is a couple of years later, they had their federal recognition taken away from them. That process of federal recognition, especially finding the evidence for it, really kick-started the relationship between Stephen and the Eastern Pequot in the early 2000s. Stephen works hard to ensure that the tribal members' wishes are what give direction to his scholarship, especially given archaeology's painful history of stealing from indigenous peoples or misrepresenting them in other ways. How does working with a tribe change the way that Stephen does archaeology then? Here, he talks about positive benefits to the community. It was something that was having um, seemingly really positive benefits 
in the community. We were involving students in university training and engaging with their community. We were bringing university and grant resources to uh, the Eastern Pequot community for training and locating and identifying cultural sites and mapping them and trying to understand different things about parts of their history they wanted archaeology to help uh, contribute to. So what the really nice thing about it was is because it was something they were seeking and I was at a moment when I was looking for a project as a fairly new professor at the University of Massachusetts Boston, we actually were able to start collaborating at the very uh, beginning rather than a lot of, you hear a lot of collaborative projects that sort of talk about, well, we gave to the community these things at the end of the project. Stephen was basically incorporating the Eastern Pequot community members at every step of his work. This entailed not just co-authorship and co-approval, but actually excavating differently. Excavations started to adjust to Eastern Pequot traditions and beliefs, and they evolved into something quite unlike more conventional one-sided and extractive archeology. span it was collaborative from the very beginning. They were approving and guiding uh, some parts of the project. They were making sure that any things that came out of the project, such as a master's thesis or a publication, that those were approved by tribal council to be able to do those. Um, we ensured that there were Eastern Pequot community members in the field during excavations. They were learning to do excavation alongside students, but then also contributing their perspectives and context to that, teaching the students themselves while they're there about their land and their heritage. So it was, it was an attempt to have all of this integrated from the beginning, you know, guiding questions and figuring out what sort of products do we want when this is over. And a lot of that's been, you know, a lot of building trust early on, having people community members present for all of these things, following protocols for what do you do with artifacts and collections when you have them? How do you properly sort of purify, cleanse yourself according to their uh, kind of ritual context before being on the reservation and uh, finding materials? And what do you do with the land when it has been disturbed and materials have come from that? So for instance, they do tobacco offerings to um, acknowledge the closing of excavations where cultural materials were found, or you have to be smudged, um, the ritual sort of cleansing with uh, smoke from different important materials like you know sage and other things before you come on to the reservation to do the work. So it's always an important way to kind of bring students into that cultural context and to show them that the act of archaeology, that's not just a sciencey thing or a research thing, it's a cultural thing and it has a history that's very complicated. And here's a case where the Eastern Pequot are trying to find out how could archaeology possibly be useful for them rather than a taking sort of discipline that it's uh, been for quite some time. How do we make it sort of give as much as it takes and how do we find a balance with that? So this is archaeology that's in direct touch, in a relationship with the people and the culture that it investigates. That relationship is sadly missing in a lot of other archaeological work. How has Stephen's methodology changed the Eastern Pequod's perception of archaeology? 
Here is what he said. And a quick note, in this clip you'll hear Stephen refer to Wigwam or Waitu. Both are terms actually used by the Northeastern tribal nations to refer to a semi-permanent domed house. So what it, at the beginning of the project, uh, the Eastern Pequot were fundamentally first interested in where are cultural sites on the reservation that we don't otherwise know about? Where did ancestors live? What kind of houses did they live in? So what we did is we began with what you talked about as a survey. We took students and tribal members and we walked systematically across, across the reservation looking for archeological evidence that might be visible on the surface. Um, and there are some of those kinds of things uh, in New England forest. If people um, were living in households that sort of moved toward European style framed houses with collapsed chimneys and cellars, you know, those things can be visible still, but a New England forest is a very difficult place to find sort of objects on the ground because mm. every fall all the leaves come down and yep. they've done that for centuries. So there's not much just sitting around to be seen. So that moves us into things that we do that start to check underground. Um, we archeologists call these particular things shovel test pit survey. So you do, do very systematic sort of small inspections in the ground to see, are there artifacts here? Okay, they're not here, but there's some over here, right? They pick up if you go this direction. And then you use that to start to home in on um, sort of sites of activity and houses. And that's how we've started to find uh, more wigwam or we too like mm -hmm. structures is they don't have a surface manifestation. You have to find post holes or hearths or trash accumulations and other things that help you sort of center in. AJ then asked Stephen if the collective memory about ancestral Eastern Pequot landscapes were still available to members of the tribe. It depends. I mean, there was lots of sort of collective memory about, you know, ancestors on that landscape, but the specific locations, uh, except for fairly recent homes, um, people didn't seem to be able to point uh, to where those were. And the other thing that didn't seem to be clear is either from oral histories or from the documents themselves is who lived in any one of these given houses that we found. Is it the ancestor of this family line or this family line, or was this uh, a small house with a large family or was this more of a community sort of guy? We, we, don't, we didn't have either documents or history that helped pinpoint that. So a lot of the archaeological work has been trying to find out, even if we can't pinpoint who it was, what were lives like in different parts of the reservation and different kinds of houses at different time periods, that became sort of the core focus. And to do that, mm -hmm. that required us moving into bigger excavations where we could open up uh, lots of what we call excavation units to expose parts of house walls or cellars or uh, trash pits and those kinds of things. And it was a really interesting process too, as we got started with Eastern Pequot, because most of them, they'd had no actual personal exposure to archeology span and how it happened. There was some concern about what are archeologists going to do because of reputations of archeologists historically um, with indigenous communities. So it was interesting to kind of have them with us as we move through that to sort of build the trust and to start with these little sort of small checks of different areas, but then to end up with some of the Eastern Pequot saying, 
wow, we really like when you dig larger holes, not the small ones. We'd like to actually see more. You know, some communities, some indigenous communities are a little resistant to having cultural sites opened up. Uh, but the Eastern Pequot, I think because of their sort of engagement with this, bringing archaeology into their fold, the mm. issues with federal acknowledgement that meant that the more evidence that they had of, look, we've been on this reservation for hundreds of years, we have this continuity. I think the opening and the bringing those histories and that kind of material form, bringing those to light was important and very positive for them. What we are seeing here is that this particular type of archaeology gave greater agency to the Eastern Pequot community, with needs and traditions taking primary importance to the archaeologist on site. Over the decades, a relationship and understanding and trust was built. And then the, the sort of destruction aspect with archaeology is, I mean, you've taken it, you've moved the dirt, you can't put it back. That then is ameliorated by the tobacco offerings and the presence of Eastern Pequot sort of being part of that process itself. So that's kind of how we would go from how do we understand the landscape, find some sites, start to excavate those. And then, of course, the next step is those materials go back, went back to the U UMass Boston Archaeology Laboratory that I oversee. They had to be washed, processed, identified, cataloged, photographed, archived, so that ultimately mm -hmm. all that information was available to them, but also to students and researchers associated with my lab, because then ultimately, as you know, there was we wanted to return those materials to them when they were ready to receive them. Return those materials to them when they were ready to receive them is a really evocative statement and something that's central to the issue of repatriating indigenous artifacts. Even though the university had temporary custodianship of the content for a while and were conducting research upon it, the Eastern Pequod had more agency over the process and ownership of their content than is typical when institutions own their materials. That's all really important and unusual. In addition, this whole process changed the focus of Stephen's work. He became interested in life at the reservation within a given period, rather than tracking changes over longer period of time. And so he began researching the relationships among sites from approximately the same time period more carefully, asking questions about what life was like on the reservation around, say, the 1780s. Let's hear Stephen explain this concept. What we were trying to do was yeah, like most archaeologists, we do want to know like what happened over several centuries mm -hmm. of a particular sort of cultural context. In this case, what happened over several centuries of the Eastern Pequot living on the reservation? And that was um, important to sort of track that over time. But what uh, became very clear was there's a certain narrative that comes out of of archaeological thinking when that's the only way that you focus on it. And so we also wanted a simultaneous interest in, right, rather than trying to find what is a representative site that says, okay, this is what Eastern Pequot life was like in 1780, because here's this one site. It's like, well, let's try to see if we can find two or three sites from those same periods and mm. see, are they, the, are they the same? Do they live in the same kind of house? Do they eat the same kinds of foods? Do they use the same sort of pottery that's becoming widely available in markets? And if they don't, what does this sort of show about just the kind of internal dynamics of communities? If one household 
shifts more towards something and someone else doesn't, that these are all really interesting parts of the sort of human experience and also these particular cultural lives that we don't want to tell these monolithic sort of single history of something. Instead, we want to look at these intersection, intersecting histories mm. that are going at these times and how people are negotiating their own times. You know, when we just sort of do the diachronic thing where it's like this site leads to this site leads to this and there's that trajectory, it sort of leaves out how did people at those particular moments, how did they engage their own histories? And how are they thinking about their futures at that time, rather than thinking, well, as archaeologists, we're looking at how did we get to this point? But they're also asking questions of themselves, like how are they drawing on their own histories as they kind of move forward and do things? So that that was an interesting thing that we wanted to look at, because I think what it also gets to is this dynamic of change and continuity and a lot of archaeological questions are often about sort of one or the other, like, well, how did these folks change or how did they stay the same? Well, I was trying to look at a question of if that community persists, if it survives, then it has aspects of change and continuity all the time. That's all communities have those things. So I wanted to shift the question to how do we look at stories of persistence or survivance, which is a particularly sort of indigenous take on um, communities and cultural persistences, how, if we look at that first, how do we then ask other interesting questions? Because for us and for the Eastern Pequot community, they're sitting there right now in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. These are their cultural materials. So they got from there to where they are now. So in a sense, they have persisted they have these sort of survivance stories, but then what are the material and historical dimensions of those? And another way I've thought about it is sort of change and continuity are like two sides of this proverbial coin. But I wanted to, what if we focus on the coin first that has the two sides rather than get caught up in, was well, it been all continuity or all change? Because that has led archeologists and other people down some problematic paths when people think, well, indigenous people have changed this much in two centuries, but they don't apply the same lens to the English at, you know, at Plymouth or whatever. And then 200 years later, it's like these different sort of um, standards are applied. So I was trying to help shift that narrative and try to make this like Eastern Pequot past and present and how, what's that connection actually mm. look like? Instead of the monolithic, unchanging representation so often ascribed to indigenous groups, what this type of archaeological narrative connected to the people and culture of the Eastern Pequots does is that it foregrounds their history as a continuous group of people that changed over time and adapted to their circumstances. This becomes possible especially when the focus is on the material history, the artifacts excavated from the reservation that tells a very close-up account of day-to-day -day Eastern Pequot lives. We would find, for instance, some houses in the late 18th century on the Eastern Pequot Reservation, we would find uh, what we call sort of shell middens, large accumulations of shellfish that had been harvested from the coastline and the estuaries. So there are reservations about seven miles um, inland. Um, so it's clear that they're accessing and using these coastal resources, bringing them 
um, to their inland reservation. People are eating oysters and soft shell clams, which we call steamers in New England or hard shell clams or quahog. Um, so they're using all these, but the interesting thing was we found a couple of sites, uh, houses that were occupied around the same period that would have different profiles of shellfish, whereas like, well, it's clear that this household might've been preferring oysters or had better access to oysters, whereas this one had all these hard shell clams or quahogs. So it kind of gave a sense of, yes, at the bigger scale, there's an interest in shellfish. It may be a renewed interest. It may be an interesting manifestation of women's labor in the late 18th century, uh, as a lot of men were on whaling ships, serving in militias, working on local farms. So there may be some really interesting uh, gender dynamics there. But then at the same time, yes, there's some use of these coastal resources, but houses are doing it slightly differently. So we got some interesting um, sense of that. Um, and we get the same sort of thing with how are they using uh, sort of pottery that's coming from English and American and Chinese sources that are coming in through the market. Um, and found some interesting things there that all houses are getting access to those, but we don't know how they're getting access to those. The, we have copies of store ledgers that talk about lots of things that um, Eastern Pequod and other native folks were buying or getting with credit from stores, but ceramic vessels are hardly ever mentioned. We have overseers records of transactions that happen on the reservation. And it might be about food products or clothing or more tragic things like coffin hardware and those kind or building material, but those don't mention these pottery vessels either, yet those are the most ubiquitous things found on Eastern Pequot sites and actually on most sites in the 17th and 18th, 19th centuries in uh, New England anyway. But so we don't really know where they're getting them. But when we look at the kinds that they have, they don't necessarily have full matched sets. They might have some uh, pottery that could have been hand-me-downs or they're buying individual pieces as opposed to walking in a store like I'd like the newest set of pottery that you got from uh, London last week or something that's not what they're doing because of probably economic and cultural preferences so we're actually able to see those but this stuff is in no document almost not covered in the documents whatsoever just like the sort of shell fishing that's not covered in any documents about the Eastern Pequod in the 18th and 19th century. So it's giving us some interesting insights. And I'll mention one other thing that's really quite um, been sort of fascinating to me and the Eastern Pequot have enjoyed this too, is by the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, Eastern Pequot folks are not really making stone tools of any sort um, like they had been doing uh, a century or two before they are using gun flints that are you know in uh, firearms and they may be sort of modifying and resharpening those i mean occasionally we found we find a flake or two that suggests someone may have been making something we do have a couple of pieces of uh, window glass that have been flaked and formed into cutting implements so that's been kind of an interesting way of looking at sort of the repurposing of materials 
But what's really interesting is in um, a couple of sites right about the beginning of the 1800s, one inside of a house and one inside of a trash pit outside of a house, we have found one or two older um, pieces of, of stone technology that very likely were made several thousand years ago. One is a stone pendant, a piece of a pendant. One is a, a projectile point that's quite old. There's a couple of pieces of a soapstone bowl. These are things that tend to be associated with several thousand years ago in New England, yet they're showing up inside of early 19th century Eastern Pequot houses. And they're, it's clear that they're not there by accident and they're not there because an Eastern Pequot family dug a cellar, hit an older site, and now there's old site materials sort of spread out through. It's like just one or two objects. And one is in the foundation area of one of the houses. And that's suggested to, to us and to them that these are Eastern Pequot families that are, I talked earlier about how people sort of reach back to their own histories as they think about their own futures. This looks to me like Eastern Pequot are reaching back and sort of summoning older materials up into uh, the 19th century in ways that we don't fully understand. Like, was that someone in the house that brought that in and other people in the house were like, why are you bringing that here? Or is it like an interesting conversation about older Pequot uh, material on that landscape being summoned? The story of this several thousand year old pendant and the projectile point makes me think of the Eastern Pequot of the 1800s interacting with a much older part of their Pequot ancestry through objects just like the Eastern Pequot of the 21st century are doing through archaeology. If I had to guess, I would think that instead of being passed down for how many generations that would have taken, I suspect that this was found locally, maybe on the reservation, uh, maybe in a local, maybe they were a work, they were a laborer farming next door on some settler colonial farmstead, and it comes up as part of the work that they're doing. So, I mean, in my mind, that's probably how it, in a sense, resurfaces and then kind of becomes a new, an old part that's a new part mm. of Eastern Pequot um, households at the time. And um, Eastern Pequot today, are they've been really excited um, finding these materials that they know were made by their ancestors well before the reservation was ever established. It's given them things that they can show to politicians and people who question them like, well, how do we know that you really been on this reservation for this long? It's like, well, here, look, there's some stuff. I can take you to a house where one of my ancestors lived. Working with the Eastern Pequod gave Stephen an opportunity to engage with Eastern Pequod youth. It's given the Eastern Pequod of all ages an opportunity to get in physical contact with their own history. They've also wanted to use it for internal community kinds of initiatives, for teaching youth uh, about things or engaging with the materials on the landscape. So when we've had Eastern Pequot community members with us in the field, they've ranged from like seven or eight year olds to 80 to 90 year olds who have you know, different ways that they want to engage. But I think as the sort of embodiment of doing archaeology sort of brings people together and puts them in physical contact 
with the, the objects of their history and with the land. So I think that's provided them with an internal way to sort of connect generations and ask different questions and foreground different things in the community. So the project shifted to focus on things the community was asking for. And this expanded to other community events and events that involved academics, some of whom were indigenous. So the last eight to 10 years had been really about how do we do products that meet community needs a bit more? And uh, I can give you some examples of those. Please do. Okay. So one of the first ones we did was back in 2013, we did a panel and an exhibit at UMass Boston that featured Eastern Pequot and Nipmuc community members, because there are two of us at UMass Boston who have archaeology projects with local native communities. Steve Mirzowski has worked with the Nipmuc for many years, uh, including Ray Gould, um, who is um, Nipmuc and is, has an archaeology anthropology PhD from the University of Connecticut. And then the work that I've been doing with the Eastern Pequot. So um, Dr. Cedric Woods, who runs the Institute for New England Native American Studies at UMass Boston, he sort of brought all this together as two UMass Boston projects serving indigenous communities. And then we had everyone come to campus to have a panel where they talked about what is archeology span meant to them? Where does it come from? We had artifacts from both projects in uh, exhibit cases in the library, photos of different things so that this was kind of a temporary exhibit there in the library. So that was one of the ways that we tried to kind of move into different areas. Well, around the same time, this was about 10 years into the project, I wanted to come up with something that was more of a giving back. So we developed sort of a privately printed commemorative book that had pictures of every Eastern Pequot community member who'd ever been associated with the project. They were all featured in there at least once. It included um, particularly interesting artifacts that had been recovered. Those were throughout the book. It had lists of here are the things that have been written about this. Here are the funding sources. So that we kind of had this all in one place. And it was something that an eight-year-old or an elder could look through that, find something of interest, and then I had Eastern Pequot folks caption every photo rather than having us do it on the institutional side. It's like, could you say something about this photo or about your experience? And so we let Eastern Pequot voices do the captioning work there, which I felt like was a pretty major move toward, again, moving more stuff into their hands. You have to have the book and the, this book was not distributed widely. It's not for sale. So all, so it, there are probably like 40 to 50 people in the Eastern Pequot community who have it. We have some in my labs, a couple of administrators, the state archaeologists in Connecticut, you know, they have mm. copies, but we really were trying to design this to be about them and for them. And then if they want to make it more accessible, they can. So then as we did that, that then led me to think more about, well, this is more engaging than, you know, like another academic piece. So then we made, uh, and that just was released in February of this year, uh, about an 18 minute long documentary called Listen to Their Voices that features 
almost exclusively just Eastern Pequot talking about archaeology, objects, land, history, identity, and then we stitch that together into um, sort of a documentary type thing. You know, there's some context at the beginning that's set up, but then otherwise they are talking about what this meant. So it was an attempt to, again, move their voices to the foreground and the, the video, audio version of those voices so that they could use that. That has become much more public. The documentary came out in February 2021. The link to it is available on our website, and we highly encourage you to watch it to hear members of the Eastern Pequot Nation discussing the importance of this work in their own words. They even had it translated into Portuguese so it could be used in an online discussion about indigenous persistence for a Brazilian audience. And there are many other important acts of reciprocity, centering on the Eastern Pequot and Stephen's way of doing archaeology. One of the articles he co-authored, Authoring and Authority, has four Eastern Pequot authors, including the lead author, Kathy Sebastian Dring, the former chairperson of the tribe. Centering the needs of the community has led to other types of local connections too. For example, because the Eastern Pequod do not have a place to store and preserve their excavated materials, the Western Pequod tribe accepted materials into their own museum for safekeeping. The Eastern Pequod said that they wanted um, those materials to come back to their actual, um, well, back to Pequod homeland. Now, they don't have a facility to take those in. They don't have a way to sort of uh, because of the financial constraints, but by not having federal acknowledgement, um, there are a lot of struggles that they face in that sense. So they don't have a building, they don't have a facility to put that back into, and they want them cared for properly. So they worked out a nation-to-nation -nation agreement with their neighbors, the Mashantucket Pequot, who, for listeners, if they don't know, they're the ones who have Foxwoods Casino and the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and Research Center, which means they're very well funded to take care of their communities and uh, the objects and the histories of those communities that the Eastern Pequot uh, unfortunately do not have. So they worked out a nation to nation agreement where the Eastern Pequot materials would go to the Mashantucket Pequot Museum and be put into storage there with Eastern Pequot being able to access those as needed or researchers to be able to get to those. So in a sense, they're under Eastern Pequot control in a Mashantucket Pequot facility, but back on Pequot land, um, you know, in a grand sense, which has been um, uh, an important sort of move for that. And what's been interesting about that is we have not ever, we don't call that a repatriation. They don't want to call it that, and we don't call it that, because repatriation has a lot of language of you're giving back something that you took, that someone is sort of making demands as part of cultural property ownership and contestations over that. To us, it was simply, you've asked for them back. We'll figure out the last few things we need to do to make sure these are accessible, and we're going to give them back to you. So they didn't want to talk about that as a repatriation because it was never taken. Stephen gave many other examples of scholars and institutions that do Indigenous-centred work created in collaboration with Indigenous nations. Yeah, there are several of these projects that uh, have been going for a few years. Um, Sarah Gonzalez at the University of Washington has a really um, 
great project in Oregon with an indigenous community that's very structured that way. Um, Kent Lightfoot at UC Berkeley, who was my dissertation advisor uh, back in the uh, 90s, he has done a lot of that kind of work with the Kashaya Pomo on the coast of California. So there are some really interesting projects. Some have been going for a while. Some are much newer. There are a couple in Connecticut, the Mohegan tribe. They have their own archaeology program. And what they do is they partnered with an academic, uh, Dr. Craig Sapola, who's at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. He has been sort of like the archaeological director, but it's always with Mohegan presence, and they've done really interesting collaborative publications. Um, and as a federally recognized tribe and a, with a casino, the Mohegan also have lots of funds to have a big archaeology building and permanent staff and equipment. Again, the things that the Eastern Pequot don't have. Mm. Like if the Eastern Pequot need an archaeology project done, we need to bring university equipment and university personnel to do it because they never have access to funds that would permit that on their own. But that's another really interesting case of a collaborative, um, tribally controlled uh, archaeology project. Stephen went on to say how important it was for universities and academic institutions more generally to collaborate in this way with Indigenous communities beyond just these specific examples. That's a way for those institutional resources to do some social and historical good and some restorative justice work because we know a lot of these institutions mm -hmm. have been ones that have taken and been part of settler colonial projects and a lot of museums are all wrapped up in issues of colonialism, imperialism, elite collecting, especially long-standing um, uh, big historical museums. But I do want to clarify one thing. The Eastern Pequot do have state recognition. Um, so there mm -hmm. are um, there are some yeah, tribes that have neither state nor federal, right. some that have only state but not federal. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's some of the irony of why of them losing their federal acknowledgement is they've had state recognition since Connecticut was a state, yet the state did lots of things to undermine their bid for federal standing. Interesting. But yeah, insta this is where you insta and this is why you know I've really tried to sort of bring UMass Boston resources to that community to get some things that they otherwise can't um, manage on their own financially, which there's also a problem in that is then that's so much of an institution bringing things to them where they don't have as much sort of self-sufficiency and control over that as they, whereas the Mohegan have full control over their mm. archeology. span Toward the end of the interview, AJ asked Stephen about his future plans. I mean, definitely would like to continue this. I mean, it's been a little more challenging with um, the last COVID context, but also the availability of grant funds to cover things at the level that we need to. You know, we've been um, supported at different times by the National Science Foundation and um, Wenner-Gren Foundation and also UMass Boston specific granting opportunities. But because this project is so long-term now, it's, it can be difficult sometimes to go back to the same funding agencies and say, we're still doing that thing. And it really is taking this long to do it at this level. Great point. So you need new angles. Um, and I thought about digital humanities, NEH kinds of directions for some, as we develop more of these sort of 
digital resources and heritage resources that are about sort of community and capacity building for the Eastern Pequot. So I see some combination of more field work because they request it. They would like us to come back and continue mm. doing that. More sort of educational resources. We've talked about things like, can we tie augmented reality to a heritage trail on the reservation that someone with an Eastern Pequot guide, for instance, could take this trail with a smartphone, you activate some code on a post, and then you can see someone else standing at that um, old house site telling you something about its history or its meaning. So we've thought about, can we keep sort of integrating and building all of this um, in different sorts of ways? So that's those are some of the things that uh, we've been thinking about. Another really interesting um, project that does some of this kind of work on the archival side is the Native Northeast mm -hmm. Research Collaborative mm -hmm. that some know about it as it used to be called the Yale Indian Papers. Right. So what Paul Grant Costa and Tobias Glaza have done, they've tried to get all these transcriptions um, of lots of documents pertaining to indigenous life and history in New England, especially in New England, but also New York and a few other places, how to make those more accessible and legible and digitally available. And what they're now doing is they're having members of indigenous communities provide sort of annotated commentary mm. on some of those documents. So some of the ones they have about the Eastern Pequot, they had Eastern Pequot interns who helped kind of work on those documents and provide their thoughts on those documents. So it's an interesting way to have a collaborative indigenous space in the archives that's available in a, so a like now, yeah. So now when you go to look at that, you're not just, oh, I'm reading a transcription of a 18th century petition. I'm also right there next to it is an Eastern Pequot person from 2000, from 2020 telling mm -hmm. you something about that or how they engage with that or what some of those mean and what what's what's the implication of people sort of filing a petition in the 18th century about what what are those implications still today of that right. petition either being granted or being denied so it, i just find it a really interesting way to bring that indigenous collaborative context again into an institutional digital humanities place and it's also a project that sometimes i've had uh, Paul and Toby come to an art, one of my field schools and sort of talk about how they're the archival and the documentary side of this works. And then I sometimes have students in the field school, they have to choose a document about the Eastern Pequot, summarize it, and then say, what are the implications of this for what we're doing here right now? That was our guest, Stephen Silliman, Professor of Anthropology at UMass Boston. You can access the transcript of this episode and learn more about Stephen's collaborative work with the Eastern Pequod on our website. Thank you for joining myself and Justin on the podcast today.